You're listening to the Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here at CorbettReport.com. Today is the 8th of November, 2017, and if you've been paying any attention whatsoever to the news this week, you'll have seen uh, explosive fireworks going on in the Gulf, uh, well, figuratively at this point, but who knows what will uh, eventuate literally from all of this. Just some incredible things going on. And this is part and parcel of the larger reshaping of the entire Middle East that is taking place right now and has been for a few years. And someone who's been documenting that and keeping her eye on it is Sharmin Narwani, an, an analyst and a writer who I'm sure you've probably encountered before, if from nothing else than our previous conversation with her. I think that was uh, three years ago at this point. But at any rate, uh, that is in the archives. But more importantly, you should be following her uh, articles. They're often reposted to places like RT and the American Conservative. But she is available directly at MideastShuffle.com. And I believe her Twitter handle is at S Narwani. Is that correct, Charmin? That's right. All right. Thank you for that. No problem. Well, of course, the links to all of that will be in the show notes, so please do go directly there. And uh, don't just take my word for it. In fact, uh, the other day we were talking to Eva Bartlett about Syria in a popular conversation that's being spread around quite a bit right now. I asked Eva about her sources, recommended sources, talking about the Syrian situation. She rattled off quite uh, quite a few of them. And as soon as we uh, stopped the recording, she said, ah, I forgot Charmin Narwani. So I did put your Twitter in the show notes to that conversation because you are a recommended source uh, from Eva Bartlett as well. So uh, I hope people are keeping their eyes on your work. And uh, right now, I mean, as I say, there's some incredibly important things that are taking place in the Middle East right now, obviously, that are making big headlines. But as I say, this is part and parcel of a larger phenomenon that's been taking place for years now, the reshaping of the Middle East. That has to do, of course, with what's been going on in Syria and Iraq, the terrorist insurgency that has been going on there for years now, and that finally some of the dam is starting to break, I think, even in the mainstream media, about the real origins of the terrorist insurgency and calling it for what it is. I think we're starting to get some indications, even in the mainstream media. Oh, Qatar was behind this? Saudi Arabia was behind this? UAE? US? Israel? Turkey? Uh, I, I had no idea. Who would have thought it except anyone who was listening to the alternative media or reading uh, real information about what was going on in Syria? And I think what we're seeing now is a reshaping of power relations in the Middle East, and things are still definitely in flux right now. So, Charmin, I want to get your take on what what alliances are forming, what power blocks are, are, are shaking out here, how is this related to what happened in Syria? Is the Syrian war, the terrorist insurgency there, is it essentially over at this point? Is it a cleanup operation at this point? And if so, what does that mean for all of the uh, Gulf states that were heavily participating in arming, funding, and training those terrorists? Those are a lot of questions, James. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> um. I think maybe we could start in terms of looking at alliances at what the Middle East looked like um, back in 2010 before the um, Arab, so-called Arab uprisings uh, broke out. So um, you had a region that was quite interesting. And I remember writing about it at that time because it seemed like there was a new kind of energy in the Middle East, a, a place where while U.S.-Iran enmity existed, and I don't really see this as a Saudi-Iranian enmity, because ultimately, um, Saudi is a small player for Iran. 
a regional one that has been handled before. It is the U.S. that keeps pushing back with various alliances and various tools to isolate Iran. So um, what you saw was a diminishing of that U.S.-Iranian um, adversarial relationship playing out in the region because you had the Saudis, the Turks, the Qataris, um, and other players um, dealing with Iran and Syria and Hezbollah. You know, they were crossing borders. Visas were, you know, visa requirements were taken away from many countries. Um, economy was, uh, or cross-border trade was was taking place increasingly. There were economic unions like the Shamjan Union between Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria that had come into being. And the Saudis and the Iranians and the Syrians and, and the Qataris and Turks were were helping to calm down situations in Iraq during the elections then and, uh, and, and in Lebanon during those elections. So you had this very harmonious, you know, tentative but harmonious spirit that was kind of breaking out in the region. And I think what pushed this was um, Turkey and Qatar um, assuming much more active roles in the region and power broking, um, or power brokering uh, where they could. Um, then the Arab Spring emerged, and all of that fell apart quickly. Turkey and Qatar, Qatar in particular, was seen right from the beginning as um, as leading the way in in, uh, in in sort of stirring up uprisings, whether in Tunisia or or um, or Egypt via Al Jazeera, its uh, its its network, and and uh, um, flying out planes to Libya, you know, um, funding satellite TV and and cell phone and and camera equipment and weapons in the Syrian theater, you know, earliest, earliest days. So um, Qatar suddenly came out of being a friendly country to the resistance axis. And the resistance axis was Iran, Syria, um, Hezbollah, and Hamas. During the Syrian conflict, Hezbollah slipped out of the group because it is um, it's it, it comes from the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and it sort of went the way of Islamists, the Ikhwan, who were um, who were uh, very much under Qatar and, and and Turkey's umbrella. So you know, fast forward today, you have a complete splintering of that nice harmonious situation, and you have two very firm blocks, which is the uh, the U.S. Saudi block in the region, and and then the Iran axis, which includes Syria and Hezbollah, and now Hamas is being edged into it, but also in a way. Um, the new entrant of Iraq, uh, though I would tentatively put Iraq in that because Iraq is still finding itself post-occupation, post-ISIS occupation as well. So U.S. and ISIS occupation um, and with upcoming elections. Um, but I just returned from Baghdad uh, a few days ago. And I tell you, there is a new energy there, something that I think it uh, makes it clear to me, at least, that it doesn't matter who gets elected in the in the next elections the sort of um, the backbone of the state is going to be very much the same kind of um, organizational um, energy that we have underpinning Hezbollah and Iran in the region. And that is through the popular mobilization uh, units, the Hashta Shabi that has emerged in the fight against Daesh. So anyways, on, on this side, it's Iran, um, 
uh, Hezbollah, Lebanon, Syria, and potentially Iraq, with the cover of Russia and China. So um, the Saudi axis enjoys the cover of the U.S. and its closest Western allies, France and Great Britain. Um, so two, two blocks, but there is a third since the inter-GCC fight um, broke out some months ago. Uh, Qatar is no longer part of the sort of um, monarchy axis that uh, has countered Iran very strongly in the region. It has pulled out of it. It has been helped by Iran. Um, and Turkey has obviously sent troops there as well. Um, so, so Qatar and Turkey are in neither. They kind of form a third unit, but it's a standby thing. It's not really an axis. Um, and I think they're just now um, building leverage and trying to see which direction, uh, which strategic direction in terms of the two axes they will eventually settle into. Um, so I think the the Arab uprisings, the Syrian crisis, the war on Yemen, the GCC split, all these things have really magnified and brought to the edge of the cliff the, um, the political divisions, the sectarian divisions um, that have been stirred up in this region. And so we're at the precipice right now, waiting and watching to see what comes next. Clearly the Saudis and Americans and now the Israelis, it's interesting, the Israelis are kind of uh, more or less firmly in the Saudi axis. Um, what that axis will do um, in reaction to the relentless gains, political and military, of the Iran axis in this region. Okay, so um, uh, we are now seeing in the last few days a, a very quick escalate, escalation of rhetoric in particular and maneuverings by the Saudi axis to put the other, the, its, its opponents on notice in the region that a war could be coming if we don't win something, you know. But it's, it's doubtful it's going to come. Most of the aggressions have come from that, the, the Saudi axis, which included Qatar and Turkey at one point. Um, you know, in the last six, seven years, most of the aggressions have come from this axis. Um, but it is lost in every theater in which it's engaged, its adversaries. Um, uh, yes. So, I mean, so that's that's one of the incredible parts about this. When you look at just the last few years of Saudi Arabia's adventures and in, in Yemen and elsewhere in Syria, for example, it's just defeat after defeat from that perspective. And in fact, I mean, the entire last decade and a half, Iraq War Two was in many ways waged on behalf of Iran, if you think about it. I mean, Iran ultimately ended up benefiting greatly from the destabilization of Iraq and the growing um, influence of the Shiite uh, uh, factions in Iraq, obviously coming more to the fore. So it, there's, there's a lot of things that I, I can understand, I guess, from a Saudi perspective that must be deeply disturbing to them and couple that with the oil prices and all of that that's going on, the, uh, the, the, the glut in the oil market that's happened over the last several years, and now Saudi Arabia is starting to worry about depleting reserves of, uh, of funds and things like this, which is uh, kind of a new idea. So I, I think it shouldn't be surprising that these types of tectonic things are occurring. But let's let's back up just a second. You, you brought up the inter-GCC squabble that, uh, that broke out a few months ago that people in my audience, I, I hope, um, remember, I did cover it a bit as it was happening, but uh, let's let's back up the uh, the truck a little bit, because of course, remember, this 
this uh, Saudi Qatar whatever brouhaha, UAE of course uh, there with Saudi Arabia. Um, this happened directly right after, of course, the Trump visit and the signing of the big security deal, and we're going to go after the the real terrorists in this region. And suddenly, Qatar is the you know public enemy number one in Riyadh. That's an interesting little part of this that I think plays into the Saudi purge and what's happening now. What was, wh- why did it come to a head then? Was it, was it, I mean, it had to have been directly related to Trump's visit, surely. Um, you know, that's really interesting. One of the things I think most hotly debated at the time of the GCC split was, was the timing. Nobody could quite understand it. Qatar was in Riyadh just a few days earlier during the Trump visit and participated in celebrations and seemed to be towing the Saudi line. Uh, Qatari royals I spoke to said, they were stumped. They were as surprised as anyone else, um, didn't see it coming. So obviously there was some um, some planning that went beyond behind this because it was so carefully orchestrated on the day that it dropped, you know, from the hacks and the, you know, the, the, the media spin that, and then the media shutting down of embassies and this and that just escalated in a very orchestrated manner. Um, so, you know, when we fast forward a little bit of time, we're looking now at this relationship between Jared Kushner and Donald Trump with Mohammed bin Salman in particular. I would like to add something that I don't hear in the discourse at all. And it is Abu Dhabi specifically. There's something up with Abu Dhabi and has been for the last few years. And if you're watching the regional news, you're seeing they're building out these mercenary armies they're ramping up their military expenditures. Um, they're interjecting themselves into situations that they didn't take play such a big role in before. Um, they're pushing the Israeli-Saudi relationship. Mohammed bin Zayed of Abu Dhabi is kind of Mohammed bin Salman's mentor. And from what I hear, um, Abu Dhabi is viewed in the White House as the U.S.'s greatest ally in this region, okay, um, from the words of somebody there and close to Trump. So what I want to say is um, when we looked at the email leaks of the uh, UAE ambassador uh, to Washington, uh, there was, he was pushing, I think it was Elliot Abrams to um, militarily intervene, some our support military intervention to Qatar. Um, the Saudis, as you mentioned, are broke. They're hemorrhaging money. This is why the, um, efforts to to take Aramco public um, have taken place. And uh, so Qatar, or taking over Qatar would be a very simple solution. You could do it in a few hours, okay? Nobody's going to resist. And it would bring the Saudis nose to nose with the Iranian gas fields that Iran is just starting to monetize, okay? And it would be not a check, mate, but it would be a check on the chessboard um, and a very dangerous situation indeed. And Saudi, the Saudi coffers will be plump with money again. So we have to look at Abu Dhabi in this equation. Uh, and we've seen post the split with Qatar that the UAE has been front and center, side by side with the Saudis in pushing this new equation in the Gulf and demanding that Qatar toes a new line, absolutely, or else. Okay, I think they were almost inciting Qatar into taking a no position in order to justify a military intervention. But that's not said in polite company <laughs> for some reason. 
Um, the end result of that, very quickly, Iran stepped in and offered to um, end Qatar's isolation, sending them food and other equipment and uh, railing against the injustice of, of, of this kind of thing. And the Turks stepped in with uh, a promise of more military troops and to protect Qatar. And the situation is, I'm sure Trump got a lot of pushback because Trump publicly um, supported the Saudi and UAE initiative against Qatar and then seemed to pull back when Tillerson and, and, and the grown-ups, as they say, stepped in to, to ease the situation and the tension somewhat. Uh, my reading on the timing of the GCC split was that uh, things had drastically but very quietly changed in the Syrian theater at that, at that time. Okay? The entire western quarter of Syria had gone silent. This is where a lot of the um, Turkish-backed and Qatari-backed uh, militant groups were based. Okay, So every time the Syrian army and its allies would go eastward to fight ISIS, these guys would rear on the western side. Their 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 um, you know rear up, and uh, the the Syrian troops would be diverted, and then ISIS would rear up. It was this ping pong game between the two. But suddenly the west coast went silent, allowing the Syrian uh, army and its allies to march um, into ISIS territory and take back that territory. And I believe the reason for this there were several reasons. But one of the key ones was that the uh, Erdogan in Turkey realized that the U.S. was going to back the Kurds to the hilt, okay? And this was an absolute red line for Turkey. Um, when that realization sank in, I think they recalibrated their position um, with Qatar and quietened things down, maybe as leverage to get the Americans back on side in the north. Um, <clears throat> but, but that didn't happen because uh, the Americans had a very distinct plan with the Kurds up north, as they did, I think, in Iraq until the recent um, uh, events in Kirkuk changed, well, post-referendum, events in Kirkuk kind of changed everyone's deliberation on the Kurds. Uh, so I think I think that's what happened. The, the, the Qataris and Turks pulled out of the Syrian conflict um, to use that as leverage, and the Saudis freaked out, and the UAE freaked out, because that's, you know, part of the the larger, their larger access plan to cripple Iran, ultimately. Um, so I think the timing has something to do with that. Uh, but, you know, um, the Qataris, like the Turks, are, these are two countries whose allies often criticize them, um, in private mostly, as we've seen in WikiLeaks, uh, because they're not handleable. They kind of chart their own course or, or which uh, very opportunistically, and we're, we we saw the latest switch um, precipitate the the Gulf split, the the effort by Saudi and way to cut her off, um, and that, that of course has ramifications for them because actually by doing that, the Iranian, uh, Syrian, Russian alliance has now found um, more uh, receptive partners in Qatar and Turkey to wind down the aggression and the violence and the conflict in the region, which um, has empowered this axis and frightened the Saudi-Israeli-American UAE axis. 
Uh, Charmin, you've just fired about a thousand different connections in my mind with all of the things that you talk about there, and they are all of a piece. There are so many different events swirling around, as we say, with these new power relations and these new blocks that are settling in, and there's going to be some hair-raising moments, I think, coming up um, as, again, as even this, the House of Sod is facing a sort of existential crisis here in some ways. I mean, there's some really amazing things happening right now, and uh, they could go in a lot of different directions. That's why I, I would like to finish up with the dreaded question. I'm going to ask you to break out your crystal ball and tell us where is this all going? <laughs> uh, I know you can't possibly answer that question, but what is the likely way in which these blocks are going to start butting heads, as it were? I can't answer the short-term and middle-term question, but sometimes those aren't even necessary because even if there's a war, it will be a short one. You know, you need weapons to keep fueling up the war um, and you need the international community to sit back and do nothing, which will not happen since Russia and China have become very active Security Council part, um, permanent members during the course of the Syrian conflict. So it's not just these shifts in, in, in um, power axes that have taken place in the Middle East, but it's a global one, you know. So where, where I can't tell you if there will be a war in the short term or if this will die out uh, um, just as, as inflammatory rhetoric, um, I can tell you that... <clears throat> the non-Saudi American UAE Israeli axis, okay, the other axis, the so-called resistance axis that includes Iran, Syria, Hezbollah slash Lebanon, now Hamash slash Gaza, and Russia, and potentially Iraq, um, keeps going from strength to strength. So if I was a betting person and looking at the range of things that have taken place in the Middle East over the last seven years, I would bet on this horse. I would bet on the resistance axis horse because um, they they have they share common goals. What you don't see on the U.S. axis side is common goals. And I'll tell you what's um, what, what's very telling about this is every time in the Syrian theater when um, militants, anti-government militants, stormed an area and occupied it. Um, within a few days, they were shooting at each other because they were Qatari-backed, um, Turkish-backed, Saudi-backed, American-backed, CIA-backed, State Department-backed, and they all had their own agendas. And this is the problem with this axis. I mean, Trump is not on the same page as Tillerson. You know, you can't imagine this, the, the Saudis, I mean, there's a, a, a revolt within the, the ruling family. I mean, you cannot imagine there to be common vision. On the other hand, so I can't tell you if there'll be a war, there'll be bombings, what, in the short term in this region. In the long term, I see an extremely optimistic picture. And part of that is because of the entrance of, um, well, of Russia and China into the Middle East theater, China economically, Russia militarily, and with uh, bringing political clout on, in the international scene. Um, but, but with an American hyper-focus on containing Russian, Chinese, and Iranian power in the last few years. They've pushed these three countries together in an unusual alliance, loose alliance, which has become fortified over the last few years as these three players, three key players have 
learned about each other and learned about common cause that they share. Um, and out of this, I think, will come a new political reality in the region. Um, these three countries, Russia, China, and Iran, share the same temperament. They share the same desire to ensure that international law is abided by and upholded, okay? Because when it is upheld, these three countries benefit, okay? Temperamentally, they are they are strategic-minded and they're slow to move, but sure to win. We've seen this over and over again. And they're coming in to now resolve, you know, with, with this idea of a larger Asia, okay, um, sort of the Asian century economically developing. Let's not forget that much of the Middle East is West Asia. And when Arabs are reminded that they are Asian among their first three identities, we are going to see economy boom here. So I think there's a grand vision shared by major players and major hegemons in this region that will always outsmart whatever these sort of, um, you know, the, the, the little boys are doing to stir things up in the region. And there's a lot invested in that larger Asian vision. And so I think it will triumph. Um, and uh, I think one of the goals of Russia, China and Iran will be, and if it's not already, um, they, they need to be looking at this. Um, much more closely is to resolve North and South Korea and to resolve India, Pakistan, because then um, everything is possible in Asia and, you know, Eurasia, I think, as European countries also chart their own course. You know, even as you mentioned, asked at the beginning, the Syrian conflict is not really over when um, ISIS and Al Qaeda are gone because um, there is a lot of chaos and uh, stirring that can still go on in the Syrian theater um, and in the Iraqi theater, much of it uh, using sectarian language and slogans. Um, so, you know, there's there's some not so nice things ahead of us, but in the long term, I think the picture is very rosy. You know, Charmaine, the last place I expected this conversation to end up was on some positive note, but here we are. So I'm so glad that it is. <laughs> and you make some good points. And at the very least, the Syrian government seems, after six years of concerted effort at regime change operation, to still be standing and still be there, which, I mean, six years ago, five years ago, four years ago, I mean, who would have... Who would have thought, really? I mean, who would have thought that the U.S. and Saudi and Israel and all of these powers would have been blocked in in that uh, goal? That's uh, that is something. And as well, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a hair on the tortoise story here, and um, I'm definitely banking on the tortoise to take us into a new era. <laughs> Well, what an excellent analysis. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. And I hope people will be following your work. Again, uh, it is mideastshuffle.com and at, on Twitter, at snarwani. Um, just some very interesting analysis here, and I'm sure we'll be seeing some more coming out with the result of all these crazy shenanigans that are happening right now as this, the dust starts to settle. I'm very uh, much looking forward to see what you have to say about that. So, Sharmi Narwani, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me on, James. Introducing The Last Word DVD. For the first time on DVD, you can own all seven episodes from the first season of The Last Word video series, including The Last Word on Terrorism. You see, to Kissinger and the other adherents of the globalist ideology, terrorism is simply a word for any act that threatens the agenda of the globalists. The Last Word on CCTV. 
But there is something more fundamentally troubling about this entire CCTV surveillance grid than mere hucksterism. The last word on utopia. The most pernicious evil always presents itself as something necessary, something transitory, a mere waypoint on the road to the land of milk and honey. In this way, the masses can be led to not only tolerate the most intolerable conditions, but actually to support those who would seek to rule over them. And the last word on independence. It is a choice that we make each and every day to live in independence or in slavery. Every day is Independence Day. The Last Word DVD. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com.